Welcome back, everybody, to Educating for Eternity, where we talk about all things Christian education and the partnership between the home and the school. We are excited about our podcast episode today. So, as always, I am joined by my fabulous two co-hosts. If they want to say hello. Hello, I'm Kevin Wilson, Director of Counseling at Christian Academy of Indiana. And I'm Alicia Schaus, Director of Band. So we're in that fun stage right now of approaching the holiday season, which means that life is chaotic. So Mrs. Schaus, what is life like in a band room leading up to the holiday? I was just saying, it's, it's lovingly, okay, it's like survive. Survive in advance. Survive in advance. Especially because you're preparing for Christmas concert. So Christmas music is like its own unique demand because everybody knows how the songs sound for the most part, but it's also like the kids' brains are fried, so you just survive to the break. <laughs> you survive to the break and keep them playing. I think everybody does that. I was talking to an assistant, my assistant principal uh, yesterday how I have vivid memories of my first few years of teaching with all the movies that I would show. Looking back on it, I mean, if we had a field trip and it took half the class out, there was no math learning. We yeah. would watch like Free Willy. I really, I vividly remember that when I had a whole bunch of VHSs. So you were that teacher. Oh. Oh. Well. I was. But I think we were all that teacher, Kevin. All right. Were you that teacher? Probably. I did take the eighth grade on a field trip yesterday, which was helpful. Um, but then it's like I do get the benefit of mouth covers of you know, when they're playing their instrument, they can't talk. We are excited to welcome the Christian Academy School System Head of Schools, which will be my direct boss, Mr. Bryce Hibbert today. So hello. So we're going to let uh, Mr. Hibbert introduce himself a little bit, kind of give his background, and then we're going to dive into a fun topic that is something he is certainly passionate about. Tell us about yourself, Mr. Bryce. How long is this podcast? About 30 minutes. So you get about so 60 I'll, seconds. So I'll, I'll shorten it up a bit. But um, I was blessed to be able to go to New Mexico and play college basketball started coaching and teaching from there, ended up in Kentucky, and I have been all over the place. I've been in seven different schools, I think. I uh, became a principal in public school at Southern High School. That was my last stint in public school and spent 31 years in, in public school and then was really blessed to be able to come to Christian Academy and be the middle school principal at English Station. And then now, uh, last you know, two years ago, Darren said, hey, would you consider mentoring the principals? And so sound like a great gig, and it's been a huge blessing. One of the things that I've always appreciated is the fact that Bryce has just a ton of wisdom. You know, just like Kevin, we are in year 38, right, I think, for both of you gentlemen today. And so just the amount of wisdom that sits there. Bryce and I are very, very different personalities, though. Um, so we rode up to a conference one time in Indianapolis, and I think I probably talked 97% of the way. Would that be an accurate uh, description? 98. Maybe 98. We're both math people. <laughs> and there was, there was like one time I remember thinking, it's been like 15 seconds. I'm just going to wait for him to say something. But I just couldn't. I just couldn't wait. So Bryce is a man uh, with a lot of words, but you got to get through that. And when he's passionate about something, he loves talking about it. So today, um, Bryce has a phrase that he probably stole from somewhere, um, which is, how do you get the students to want what they need? 
You know, how do they get them to care about their own education? So we're going to kind of dive into this idea of student motivation, whether that is intrinsic motivation, which is on their own, they are thinking through how is this important to me, versus external motivation, which is me bribing students. So this is very real because right now, um, whenever I get, whenever I ask students to do something, the first question out of their mouth is, "What's in it for me?" So we're having a flag football. A tournament even tonight. And the student council president emailed me and said, all right, well, they're not willing to play unless they can get like a comfy day out of it. And I said, no, they can get the victory, the, the thrill of victory. Everything they want now is external. So that's the conversation for today. So in our classrooms or in our offices, things we've seen, where do you think that underlying idea comes from that maybe they don't care about their education and their learning? What are some of those root problems? I think that there's like a real fear of the future that they all struggle with in a lot of different ways. Um, They're not only like afraid to set goals, but they're just afraid of what might lie ahead in general. And so it's not like it was, honestly, I know it sounds like I'm pointing to the dark ages. When we were kids, we were really excited for that next step of life. There's a lot of fear surrounding the unknown of what's next. There's a lot of fear just surrounding decisions and choices. Um, And I think that really locks up the now because it's not like, hey, I should get really good at this subject because I might use it in my future. They're afraid of their future. So some of these subjects and core areas even that might normally motivate a student, we see much lower intrinsic motivation because they don't know what they want to do with their life. They don't know what lies ahead. They don't know if they're even going to go to college They and they're afraid to make that decision at all. And so it just really locks up the now of trying it all. Yeah. And so consequently, I think they're just living for the moment. I mean, they're yeah. just living for whatever right now. And in this day and age, there is so much in the moment. Okay. Students have so much at their fingertips, so so many uh, external stimuli that, that they just constantly are living for that next hit of excitement, that next thing that pleases their senses. Yeah. And to think about the future or like in my case as a social studies teacher, to think about the past, it's like, why in the world would I care about what happened in the 1400s? Because that's not now. I think the other piece is that we have so much information at our fingertips that parents watch what's going on in the world, and it creates so much fear, like you were talking about, Alicia, that they're afraid to let their kid get outside of their bubble and so that they never experience anything. And so then it all comes from the parent, and it's this safe little place. And then too, if you ask Todd Whitaker, we started falling when we gave every kid a trophy. You know, there's there's no work ethic. There's no intrinsic, if I do this, I know I'm going to get a trophy. It doesn't matter how good I am. I think your point about the parents um, is a real interesting, interesting one that maybe I haven't thought through. I know that when I want my children to do something, let me rephrase it, when my parents wanted me to do something, they told me to do it, and therefore I did it. You know, now, a lot of times when we tell our kids to do something, they don't want to do it, so we have to bribe them. I mean, think about this with our younger children. How often do parents bribe their younger children to have good behavior, to have, uh, here's a device because I'm just trying to get you through the next moment. And so there isn't building up that inherent thing. So we have a phrase in our family that we say, mommy and daddy never reward bad behavior and we sometimes reward good behavior. So they don't expect it, they expect it, but they don't expect it. So I think that's a really good point that maybe I hadn't thought through was that this goes back to, you know, those two to eight year old 
time phrases or time periods to where it's just easier to bribe your kid to take out the trash, to bribe your kid to be kind to their friend, to bribe your kid to fill in the blank. Or even just to sit and be quiet. Yeah. You know, give them a device, they sit and they're quiet, and mom and dad can do their thing. So if we think about the fact that we know it exists, what are some um, pitfalls in the education world when a student has no motivation? What kind of things are maybe they in danger of falling behind in? Or, or habits they're maybe building? How, is, how does the lack of intrinsic motivation affect their schooling? Yeah, you know, I see it all the time. Uh, and, and it's interesting, you know, as I work with students who are struggling academically, um, they, they know they're failing, and I will talk to them repeatedly throughout the semester. And it's the same conversation over and over. It's like they were failing in August. They're failing in September. They're failing in November. And I had one student one time who, who sat across the desk from me, and he, he knew he was failing. He knew he was struggling. And he was like, I don't know what to do. Because he said when he would go home, he just wanted to get lost in the world of video games. And he knew there was a danger in that. He knew that he was failing. He knew he needed help. And so he sat across the desk from me and basically said, what do I do? He was just like totally lost in not knowing what to do. Although he realized it had incredible negative uh, impacts on his life, he did not know how to get out of it. He did not have enough internal drive and motivation to pull out of that living for the moment experience and that high that he got from the excitement of the video games. And so I see that all the time in working with students uh, when they don't have that internal motivation, they're falling behind academically, they're failing classes. They clearly could do the work if they would just put forth the motivation. It's, it's the conversation surrounding how do we get people adults alike, to do things they don't want to do that need to be done, right? Like I, the amount of times I look, you used your kids, the amount of times I look at my four-year-old and say, do you think I want to fold these clothes right now? I don't, but what happens if I don't, right? So this season of life, um, it, it starts with us understanding that God uses every season of our life for formation, for our growth, for everything. Right. So we have to trust that. That's the that's the basic truth under that, right? Like we trust God with every season. Therefore, we're building things now in the doing the history assignment, doing the math assignment, that even if you're not going to use that direct concept in the future, the act of learning, the act of trusting authority above you to do the thing that you don't so much want to do is formative for the future no matter what lane you go in, whether it's a homemaker or a engineer. You're going to have to do stuff you you don't want to do, which means you're going to have to end up making yourself do the thing. Um, but the pitfall of the student that you can't get motivated in the classroom is that it's that like, how do you make yourself mow the yard when you're exhausted after a long day of work? How do you make yourself spend time with your spouse? How do you remember to call your parents when you are an hour and a half away from them. It's all of those things. It's the same stuff, like prioritizing things that need to be done, even if you don't want to do them. But, but when somebody's passionate about what they're asking you to do, like you'll, you're way more apt to work hard in a practice for a coach that is very clearly passionate about what they're doing. You're way more apt to try hard in a classroom where a teacher if we're going to spin it in a school context, is very passionate about the why of what they're doing to get students to buy into the why. So it's not just parent-related, it's teacher-related as well. And us explaining our why and passion behind our subject, that has a direct impact on the student that's listening. Yeah, to me, that, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm here, because I love this subject. You know, when I walked into Southern High School as a failing school in JCPS, um, kids walked in with shrugged shoulders and it looked like 
okay, what's going to happen to me today? They had no buy-in. They had no understanding of why they were there. And so it started me thinking, well, how can we make school matter to those kids? How can we get kids to own their own learning? Well, if I'm going to own something, I got to know what it is. And I think that's the piece that we miss often in the younger grades. You've seen the pictures of, you know, students still in desk, and we're not making it matter to them. And then I think what then adds to that is this parent, this helicopter parent that once this environment, they want it really bad for their student to do well, right? For a variety of reasons. The teacher, there, there are very few teachers in 38 years of doing this that I've seen that really didn't want their students to succeed. So the teacher wants it, the parent wants it, but we're missing the kid. And so how do we make that happen? That, that's been my driving passion of how do we get them to own it? How do we get them to understand it? And if you want to go all the way back, Kevin, to the three R's, rigor, relevance, and relationship, there has to be some relevance. So how can we connect the gamer to school so that they then say, oh, okay, I can use this for that? Yeah, and I had a student uh, along those lines who, uh, as a high school student, he was... um, you might say he had ADD, uh, very smart, very bright, but kind of all over the place. But yet he found a passion in science when he was able to connect uh, video games to a science fair project, began working with the idea of heart rate and the effects of video games physiologically on a person, okay, actually was then able to start working with a college professor who started work, uh, uh, supporting him in his research. That student is today a, a leading doctor uh, and has done incredibly well. Uh, and just, I think so much of that was birthed out of taking uh, something of interest to him channeling it in such a way where he could really get excited about it and apply it and then use it. So pretty much what you all are saying is that our teaching has to go with the times. It's not that we bend to culture. It's that we pay attention to student interest at all. What did you end up doing at Southern, by the way? Were you able to impact that climate and desire to learn and buy in? Yeah, I think. And and so there were other cultural things that we did, like calling it our house, trying to get the kids to even own school and take care of it. Um, but we had a career system. So we had auto tech kids that were repairing cars and we had to connect English to help them do better in English and to do better on the ACT. Unfortunately in public school, it's all about a number. So my job depended on how these juniors would do on the ACT. And so it was a big deal to try to get them to own that, to try to get them to do better. Um, and we really didn't have anything to offer them. It was just, hey, the principal needs you to do your best. Now, for me, that comes out of Colossians 3.23. I've, I've lived that way my whole life. So let's keep talking about this. So you mentioned that's the goal. The goal is for get, to get students to own their own learning. And it's something that I've stolen from you is the idea that when a student walks into the hall, there should not be another person that cares more about their learning that day than they do. Awesome. So let's keep diving into this. How do we do that? So Bryce, what kind of things do you have you experienced that have worked to get students to actually care about their own learning? Yeah, well, one, we all know that it's about relationships initially because the relationship is going to allow the student to share with you what some of their interests are. 
then if I can try to create some kind of relevance or even a conversation that I might be the math teacher, but they like doing this. So I talk to them about that and it makes them more interested in following me in math. Um, so it's, it's really those two pieces to me. The relationship first has to be there and then some care about what do I, what are you interested in? And it, and it may not completely tie into the content you have that day, but the more teachers that are doing that with more students, then I think you can get them. Yeah, and that takes time. It takes energy. And so us as educators, we have to be willing to put in that time and energy to have those conversations, to connect with the kids, and then to to pray that God give us the wisdom to take whatever it is that they are interested in and somehow be able to weave that in maybe to our subject matter or into our classroom so that they could see, wow, my teacher really cares about me and they're bringing my interest into play here, not just what the teacher's agenda is, but they're bringing in my interest in the things that I care about. Which does support some of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs stuff, right? Because what you're saying, Kevin, is it takes time out of our lesson plan. Like it's less instructional time. But I can just speak to what's been happening in the band room in the last few weeks. I am playing, let's just use our advanced band, our top band. I am playing less with them right now than I've ever played because I'm spending more time doing other stuff than I've ever done. And they are playing at a higher level than they have ever played. And it's because we're doing some of that base level needs. They know that they are cared for in that room. They know that we are fostering like a community of, you know, spiritual growth and development and like just character development too. And it's hilarious if somebody like actually looked at how much time they're actually rehearsing, they would think it was a joke. But it's truly comical how well that they are playing despite how much time we're actually spending on content. If you think about it, um, the three of us that have been principals and gone into classrooms, there is a significant difference in student behavior, if you will, in the classrooms that are dynamic, in the ones where the teacher is passionate, where the ones that they understand their students. Now, passionate does not always mean that you are the loud, energetic, crazy one. It means that you care and the students know that you care about your subject and the student. I mean, for me, when I look back at the classrooms that I've had the privilege of being in the last five or seven years as a principal and assistant principal, so many of them just stand out because they get the students engaged. You know, there's a difference between students paying attention and students being engaged. Are they actively working through things? Now, there are some other students that have the, sorry, some teachers that have the ability to do that more than others. And sometimes that's a natural ability, but at the end of the day, it really just takes passion. You know, passion changes so much. So is it contingent on a teacher to have a highly dynamic classroom for a student to be motivated? Because we know it's easier that way, but what happens if there's a teacher that maybe has a different personality? Is that student, are we just, you know, doomed in that scenario? I don't think they have to be dynamic to be passionate. Sure. Agreed. And I think that we can all, no matter how the Lord has wired us, be intentional with showing our passion for our subject. And I think that that's the other part of having a staff, is that you're not going to connect with every kid. Right. But to know that Kevin connects with Johnny, and maybe I don't, I go to Kevin and say, hey, what are you doing with him? I want to try to create a better relationship. So we have those kind of conversations, but know that just like you and I, you mentioned at the beginning, you talk 98% of the time, I talk 2%. I got a lot to say. I, I think I think it's important too then as educators that we model it, you know, that we show that we're excited about our subject matter. And even if we're not the most passionate, dynamic, loud, or whatever teacher, that we still show that we 
that we're doing something ourselves to be students and to learn more about it. And then secondly, that we give kids the uh, so, some opportunity, some variety in their learning, rather than just have one way of learning something or one way of doing something, that we give kids some choices so that maybe the artistic student can do the project uh, according to their natural bent. And maybe the kid who loves reading and writing can, can do the project according to their bent. We give the kids those options. That will stimulate uh, more of that ownership of their learning as well. That has been the biggest thing that I have learned once I got out of the classroom. I taught the way I learned. And why would it not be the best? Because it's the best for me. And so I was an example doer on the board in my math classroom. I would give the kids time to work. I would go around and we'd do that over and over again. Um, and I thought it was the best teaching ever. And it probably was good teaching, but was it actually good learning taking place, which is a huge difference. So it was when I got outside of that mode that students learn more. So there's one project in particular. Um, two math teachers before me, he was a meticulous mathematician. He's a 30-year vet when he retired, knew what he was doing. Well, he had these projects that he left me. And I would look at these things and I'd be like, one, that is way too rigorous. And two, that's too student independent because they need me. They need me to be there. So at the end of the day, I was like, I think I was probably just desperate for another project to do it was toward the end of the year. So I ended up giving them, I broke them up into groups and I gave them a packet with five or six harder geometry problems. Well, I gave them the answers as well. And that just boggled my mind. Why would I give them the answer? Well, they had to realize it wasn't about the answer. Um, and so they broke up into groups, but then I added a little twist to it. I said, now I'm going to call you into the room, out of the room, into the hallway, one at a time, and you have to be able to answer any question that I ask about the problem, and your group grade depends on it. So that way, Kevin's not doing all the work and turning it in, and Alicia has no idea what she's doing. Kevin has to teach Alicia. Alicia has to figure it out and learn. The success of that project confused me because it was not mine. I didn't make it, which was a selfish, immature thing. And how in the world could this work? How in the world can this group project work? It was just crazy to think through. I teach the way I learn, and therefore everybody should learn that way. Another thing, teachers have to kind of get to a place of lessen their pride a little bit, release some of that control. Some of the neatest things that I've seen in math classes where I, I had teachers that they would maybe give a quiz the day before and then pick the five top scores or whatever kids that they felt like could really, well, they made them the experts the next day and put the kids in small groups. They went back through the expert would actually teach to a group of four kids and the kids actually wanted to listen to their peer yeah. more than the teacher. Yeah. But you talk about those sure. experts coming out puffed up, you know, it's, it's just releasing some control, letting the kids have some say us get out of the way. It's also building leadership. Which is very challenging for some people in a school because that means I have to let go of control. Yeah. All right, so the last thing you just said, Bryce, well, I want to take that and expound on something that you introduced at your school and then we've kind of introduced here is the whole idea of the student-led conferences. We want the students to take ownership. Can you just kind of give us some explanation of what that is, some background and things that you've seen from all that? Yeah. So, and, and like you just said previous, that wasn't my idea. Actually, there was a lady out in Colorado that started that whole thing. Um, but it was just an opportunity. You know, so many conferences, they had kind of have a bad rap of, well, those are just the meetings with parents of troubled kids. And so wanted really an opportunity for 
kids to be able to shine. And we actually did it in public school. We did it at Southern uh, my last year. When I got to Christian Academy, I thought, oh, this is great. I got everything. I got parents that are involved, teachers involved. We've got great kids. So this should really, you know, just take off. But there was a lot of training because the parents weren't signing up to come because they thought, oh, you know, my kid's a straight-aid kid. I don't need to come. Um, but it was a deal where, you know, my own experience of my own kids, I would ask them every day, hey, how'd school go today? Tell me one thing you learned. And they would just, oh, nothing. School was great. You know, they would never say anything. And I thought, what if we had an opportunity for kids to really talk to their parents about what they've been doing all year? And that would give the kid a, a, an opportunity to present, which is a great thing for them. And so that's where it came from, really, of just giving kids an opportunity to talk to their parents about what they've been doing in this setting at school with the teacher sitting there. Um, it's just a win-win-win all the way around. Did So when you brought it then to Christian Academy of Louisville, um, obviously I know COVID kind of hit as you were rolling that out, and then I know that you did it for a few years. So what has the um, outlook been, or how has the reception been over there between the parents and the students and teachers? Yeah, um, it's, it's really cool to see things when people take risks. So um, the teachers weren't crazy about it initially. They thought they saw all this work, and so I had to get them to want what we need and see that, no, it's, it's really about the student just keeping track of what they've been doing. Shanda Cunningham was instrumental and unbelievable about setting up the backpack, the digital backpack, where they kept their information. The other piece that we got out of it was this faith-based piece because we were trying to figure out, you know, how can you assess? And so it was really about the student writing. My dream was they write in sixth grade what their spiritual walk is like, and then through sixth, seventh, eighth, and by the time they get to eighth and they share that, it would be cool to see the growth that they've had and to be able to share that with their parents. So then we started doing it. 420 out of 460 student-led conferences happened year one. It's a good number, yeah. And the parents loved it. We videoed. We started videoing them um, so that we could share with other people. We learned that sixth graders didn't really understand the technology to be able to put their pieces in. So then eighth graders who were already done started coming down. So we got the mentoring piece in as well. So it became this, this thing that was really awesome for the kids in the school. And, um, and I had a f three or four meetings with boys that they were all boys um, that just didn't get it. Why am I having to do this? This seems like more work. So for me, when we brought it here last year, um, I think I did a poor job of explaining it because these kids are thinking they're getting up on the auditorium stage in front of everybody and talking. It's like, no, no, you're sitting in a classroom with just your parents. Um, and I actually threatened them in a middle school principal sort of way. I said, you have to do this in order to move on to the next year. So we had about 99%, maybe even closer to 100% of people actually do the conferences. But what was interesting was the parent reaction. And so we had to do a little survey at the end of them, and 95% of the parents were like, this was amazing, it was incredible. The other 5% are from the students that are those A kids. They're like, look, we talk about this at the dinner table every single day. Why did I have to get off work to come to this? I could have done it el something else, yada, yada, yada. 
When you're doing something, if you got a 95% positivity rate, I'll take it all day long. And so a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were motivated to do it. We have been teaching them. And so people were, are real good anymore about saying, ooh, that's really good. That should go in your digital backpack. And so these kids are thinking through it all the time. Um, one of the last things I want to talk about is how do we then celebrate, outside of the you know praising for that conference, how do we celebrate student progress? Let's say they set a goal. We've, we talked about that in the podcast before, setting goals. When they achieve those goals and their motivation has taken them across the finish line, how can we celebrate their progress? Telling them means far more than people sure. realize. Actually saying it to them. It can be in front of the class, but it doesn't have to. Our words mean so much. We use our words to discipline and try to keep attention. Like, what's that passage say? Like, words have the power of life or death, right? We forget the life piece often. So when you notice progress in a student, when you notice growth, you should say it. Because they're, that running internal dialogue of negativity and self-esteem problems is present even in our high-achieving students. So any growth that you see, you should say that's it's not a trophy thing. That's not an everybody gets a trophy. It's just everybody looking at specific students as individuals and like affirming growth in the individual so that they know that their hard work is seen. Like that's invaluable. Parent, teacher, or cross. I totally agree. And it doesn't have to be like some huge accomplishment. I mean, I, I called a student in yesterday and we, we talked a little bit and it's been minimal growth, but there's been some growth. And so I just tried to at least encourage that, that, hey, you're on the right track, yeah. you know, and I think you're exactly right. Words do matter. And there may be conversations that I have with kids years later, I will have no recollection that I ever had that conversation, but they will bring it up. Oh, they yeah. will say something about it. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't have any clue of saying that or any remembrance of saying that, but they do. Yeah. And I know for me, there are times when I, as the principal, you get to do a lot of things. And sometimes I got to handle the big discipline things. And so even recently, I was talking to a student about his behavior in class. Well, I checked back in. The teacher said everything was great. And so I made sure I went up to that student and I said, hey, teacher says you're doing great. Just simple things. I know that for me, whenever I go to plays and concerts and different things, um, I'm one of the first ones on the stage so I can talk to the kids. Excellent job. This was great. I mean, I pulled one kid aside recently and said, I've just seen the growth that you have had in the last couple of years in this performance. So I do think that the more that we can celebrate that, now, the bigger the school gets, the harder it is to publicize those things, right? Because I can't put a PD over here on the Facebook page and then forget about the Facebook page for three months because now everyone thinks that PD is my favorite kid. Yeah, but the one-on-one -on -one conversation means so much more Correct. than the public shout out. Or even notes home right? And um, if we, we call home for bad reasons, we send emails home. How often do we send an email home praising a child, talking to their parent at a ball game about something that, hap that happened as well? So one of the things I want to end with is the idea that motivation for our students is super important. We all know that, but it is our job as parents and teachers to help them along the way. These kids do not have their entire world figured out yet. They're still in the developmental stage. So parents, think about how you are motivating your children. Think about how you are getting them to behave because that's what you want rather than what they want. Teachers, if you're listening, think about ways that your classroom can bring out the best in your students and motivate them as well. We hope it's been a great conversation. As always, we appreciate you all listening. Feel free to give us a follow or leave a comment and then tell your friends about the podcast as well. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.